Welcome to the Sanford Psychology Podcast, where leading psychologists come to share their most recent work. I'm Angie, and for this week's episode, we have Dr. Nicholas Coase. Nicholas is a research scientist at Stanford, and he is also the director of Psychological Science Accelerator, a globally distributed network of psychological science laboratories. In this episode, we chat about a recent common piece on nature titled "Build Up Big Team Science." We will take a deep dive into this emerging trend in psychology, which is research done by a lot of people across a lot of labs. Nicholas will also share with us the challenges along with the promises of big team science. Without further ado, here's our conversation. So thank you so much for joining the podcast today with me.、Um, I'm thrilled to have the chance to talk to you. Instead of diving into a specific research topic today, we are going to talk about a recent trend in many domains of psychological science, which is big team science. We will center our discussion around a recent common piece you published, along with others on Nature, titled "Build Up Big Team Science." So before diving into the topic, I wonder if you can give us a gentle introduction to the terminology. What exactly is big team science? Sure, big team science, in my view, refers to scientific endeavors where an unusually large number of researchers come together in pursuit of a common goal. So this can mean that the researchers are dispersed across labs, disciplines, or countries, but the key Factor is that there's an unusually large number of them, and that they're all collaborating on a single thing rather than sort of parallel playing in the field. I see. So that does sounds like something that's not something we. I mean, like as at least when I kind of grew up in the science,、um, when I was reading on papers, it normally kind of published by a single lab or a single group of researchers. So this does sounds like a very exciting new movement in the psychology. So I wonder if you can share a little bit about how did your journey into big team science get started? Yeah, so it actually started with my dissertation project, and so my dissertation was. On a controversial idea known as the facial feedback hypothesis, and the facial feedback hypothesis refers to the idea that sensory motor feedback from our facial expressions directly impacts our experience of emotion. So, smiling can make us feel happy, pouting can make us feel sad, scowling can make us feel angry. And I spent the first few years of my graduate school training basically debating. Whether the facial feedback hypothesis was valid or not, and these debates were happening in scientific journals, and they were happening on Twitter and Facebook back when you know, Facebook was a hot place for people to debate science.、Mm-hmm. And at some point, I felt that it was a little inefficient, and it seemed unnecessarily polarizing. And I felt that we could make more progress if we could all get together and work together. To articulate our theoretical views and design studies that could address discrepancies in our views. So, for my dissertation project, I formed an adversarial global collaboration where we brought together theory proponents and theory critics, and basically debated the theory for a few months. And 
tried to come together to design a test that would address our outstanding disagreements. And these sorts of collaborations move pretty slow. So I finished my dissertation probably two years ago and the paper will not be published for another few months. Um, and so I can't talk about all the results yet, but what I can say is that that experience made me realize that if we want to tackle some of the biggest problems facing our field, a really effective way to do so is to reach across the aisle and collaborate with people. So you mentioned the terminology adversarial collaboration. Am I saying that correct? Yeah. yeah. Um, what is that thing? Yeah, I, I know that Daniel Kahneman wrote a pretty popular paper where he promoted this idea of working with your critics. And so we call this an adversarial collaboration because we brought together people who had very different views and who might be considered adversaries in the field. And so we had some people who were, you know, we consider themselves very cognitive theorists of emotion. And they say, no, emotions arise when situations happen and we cognitively evaluate the situations. And that's primarily how emotions work. And then, um, so we call those the critics and then the proponents were emotion embodiment theorists who said, no, what's really important is the activity that's happening in the peripheral nervous system, that's a very primary determinant of emotional experience. And some of these people had been debating these issues since the 80s. And we were able to get them to come together and say, okay, let's design a test that if you don't believe that this phenomenon is real, um, show us a test that would change your views. And if you do believe that this phenomenon is real, what would be a test that could falsify your belief? And then we made everyone agree a priori that these conditions were sufficient, which I thought was an important aspect of collaboration because you don't want people to, after the fact, say, oh, no, I never thought that'd be a good test in the first place. And so this idea of getting people to go on record beforehand and help and have a direct hand in designing the study, um, I think was a pretty critical aspect of this term adversarial collaboration. Oh, that sounds like a fascinating process. And I imagine that as you're doing this type of big team science, when you're like bringing a lot of kind of collaborators across many different areas or different domains, it might be the case that there are people from have like very different views. So I wonder if you can say something about like as you're doing this leading projects on big team science, have you kind of encountered situations where, for example, different collaborators may have completely different views? And how do you like resolve the kind of a disagreement among collaborators? That's a good question. Yeah, so disagreements definitely occur. I, I remember the first time I presented my dissertation project, I said, the first thing I learned from big team science is that if you ask a simple question to a large group of researchers, you're not going to get a simple answer. <laughs> and sometimes people will disagree quite strongly about how to do things. So I think there was a couple, a couple of strategies that helped in this particular project. One is that I considered myself relatively agnostic. And so I was in a pretty good position to serve as a mediator. And I think that's a role that suits me well. I love getting lost in the nuance. I love fence sitting. And so, and so I think that helped move things along is to have you know, some people who are very neutral and just wanted, wanted the collaboration to work and wanted to see science progress. Another thing that we did that I think really helped us move things along is that we agreed a priori to have some sort of decision-making structure. And 
we agree that it might not be possible for us to unanimously agree on every single detail. And in that scenario, we would allow people to upload dissenting opinions. We modeled it sort of similar to how Supreme Court justices in the U.S. make decisions where we might say, okay, we, we are agreeing about this ruling, but I have a small disagreement that I'd like to voice. And so we gave people that opportunity. We said, you can agree with the conclusion, but not agree with the logic. And you can submit a dissenting opinion, or you can disagree with the logic and the conclusion mm -hmm. and submit a dissenting opinion. And we agreed that we would use that mechanism and link to those dissenting opinions along the way. What was interesting is we actually didn't end up having to do that. Merely having that mechanism available helped reduce tension when people were debating certain topics. And so if it seemed like people were reaching a stalemate, we could say, okay, listen, this is why the dissenting opinion format exists. And that often could reduce tensions. And maybe over the next couple of weeks, those people would finally reach some sort of agreement or some sort of um, you know, compromise. And so oftentimes they would say, okay, we disagree about this thing. So let's just add a condition to the study. Mm -hmm. And so the study ended up having a lot of conditions because of that. But yeah, ended up, we ended up reaching consensus. But I think having someone who was a relatively neutral mediator and having an avenue for people to voice dissenting opinions, which are inevitable when you're bringing together dozens of people, I think that was sort of key ingredients to making the collaboration work. Mm -hmm. It sounds like collaboration is such a like a big part of doing big team size instead of like just having individual contributors across a lot of different areas. People in the team are actually actively collaborating together and making the decision work. So um, now maybe it's time to gradually shift towards the paper that we are discussing. So I know in this uh, common piece, you identified three barriers basically to do big team size. And the first thing is about rewarding team players. So I wonder if you can say more about what it is and uh, maybe give us a kind of like examples of the, the kind of the challenge that you encountered as you're doing this big team science. So there's a historian from the University of Memphis in Tennessee named Michelle Grigsby Kofi, if I'm pronouncing it correctly. She'll let me know if I'm not, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> and she wrote this really great piece where she described academia as a selfish sport. And she said that academia is a selfish sport where researchers are rewarded for self-absorbed fixations. And it's a selfish sport where prioritizing yourself at the expense of others is very advantageous and perhaps even encouraged. And so barrier one of big team science is rewarding team players in an otherwise selfish sport. We need to play a team sport, despite the fact that the rule books tell us it's a selfish sport. And a more concrete example of what this looks like is an anecdote from a project called the Mini Primates Collaboration. So in their first study, they wanted to examine the working memory of, I believe, 40 species of primates. And their methodology was actually really cool. I don't, I don't study primates, but I really like their methodology. Basically, they would hide food um, like mm -hmm. underneath cups, and then they would have these time delays and then see how long um, it took before primates forgot where the food was. And because they did this across various species of primates, they were able to make some inferences about the evolutionary basis of working memory. So it's a massive, massive project. And I think there was maybe up to 80 collaborators on it. 
80 so, collaborator. Yeah. Yeah. Which is <laughs> big team science can vary. Sometimes it's 12 collaborators. I've seen projects with over 500 collaborators. And so it, it's very difficult. The 80 is, 80 is a very ambitious project, particularly given that they were working with a difficult population, which is primates, mm-hmm. uh, non-human primates, as they would tell me. <laughs> and when you look at the paper, which is a fantastic paper, you see that the first author on that paper is merely the team name, many primates collaboration. And then after that team name, you have all of the people who actually contributed to the project and they're listed in alphabetical order, which levels out the playing field a little bit. You really don't know who did what. And this authorship arrangement is very interesting because it highlights the accomplishments of the team, the many primates collaboration, but it does not emphasize any of the individuals. And so it's not adhering to the rule book, the selfish rule book of academia. And so that can be challenging because if you contributed to that project and maybe you're on the job market the following year, people look at that and they don't know if you played a lead role or if you played a minor role. They don't know who the lone genius, I put that in quotation marks to the listeners, who the lone genius on the project is. And so those sorts of contributions are incredibly valuable to science, but it can be difficult to, to get people to reward it in a field that still has a somewhat selfish rule book. Yeah, I know that I feel like a lot of the kind of the challenges related to like rewarding team players sounds like has a lot to do about the incentive structures in academia. Mm-hmm. And I also know that any type of changes in academia or higher institutions is going to take a long time. But I wonder, um, have you noticed a change in the landscape in recent years since like big team science has been uh, discuss in a lot of different fields. Are there kind of different perspectives are bringing in or different approaches to try to evaluate, for example, job candidates differently? Yeah, so I, I'm still, I think, very early career. So it's hard for me to assess long-term changes in the field landscape. But I guess I've noticed some promising trends. So one of them is that funders are beginning to recognize this as a legitimate form of scientific inquiry. And so funders and you know end up being a barrier oftentimes when they continue to expect that there'll be one person leading a team and they'll probably be at one institution or maybe three institutions total. I'm now starting to see funders recognize that maybe there'll be 50 institutions involved in a project. And I've seen them start to strategize about how they'll handle that logistically. Will they disperse 50 payments to 50 institutions? Will they disperse it to one institution, which will then subcontract things out? So the fact that funders are grappling with this and beginning to develop guidelines, to me, suggests that they see the utility of big team science and are trying to find a way to be able to fund it. I've also seen that maybe there's a bit more recognition that this is a kind among maybe higher people who engage in hiring and tenure promotion, it seems that they're beginning to recognize that this is a type of scientific contribution and they're trying to figure out ways to weight it appropriately. And I don't think that people have the answer to that yet. But some of the interesting things that I've seen happen is that people will be asked to clarify their roles on each one of the projects. So when they go to their tenure committee, they can say, hey, listen, I've sort of led project management for a few of these projects. Um, But I've also led 
and idea development for a few of these projects. And by more clearly outlining exactly what you did on those projects, tenure committees might be able to weigh your contributions in a way that they think is worthwhile. I would probably disagree with the way that they weigh contributions. I think that they might downplay how hard it is to manage a project Mm -hmm. and um, give more weight to idea development. Um, But at the very least, the fact that they're starting to try to parse things apart and assign weight means that they're engaging in a conversation and starting to think it through. One more thing I'll say about project management. One thing I've learned in big team science is that ideas are cheap and execution is expensive. And so with the group that I direct, the Psychological Science Accelerator, we sometimes get dozens of proposals for a research study, and we'll only have a few slots for them. These are all brilliant ideas. It's, uh, there's no shortage of brilliant ideas out there, but executing them is very hard. A lot of people don't know how to execute a study at it in a global fashion. They don't know how to organize dozens of researchers. And so I think that that's something that's changed in my perspective over the years is when I was very early in my graduate career, I thought that idea development was the pinnacle of a scientific con- contribution. And now I'm, my perspective is changing a little bit and I'm realizing that um, some of the most difficult parts of engaging in large collaborations um, require skill sets that are not well promoted and developed and incentivized in traditional academic spheres. That sounds interesting. And just out of curiosity, um, so I know probably different fields, like different disciplines will have a different kind of ways of assessing um, publication. And I know some, like some type of uh, sciences like physics, their author list might be extremely long. Like they will list out like basically all of the people contributing. So mm-hmm. um, do we know like how are people in those fields are being evaluated? And is there any lesson that we can learn from um, the collaborations in other disciplines? I think that there are some lessons to be learned there. Um, it is a little hard to make cross-discipline comparisons, of course, because one thing that really differentiates big team physics from big team psychology is the amount of funding. And so we don't have billions of dollars for large hydrogen colliders. And so, um, you know, I suspect that people would be okay if I made a small contribution, but brought in billions of dollars of funding. But uh, anyways, I think that there's still some lessons that can be learned there. And one of the things that I really liked seeing from those disciplines is first just a recognition of what it means. And so because it's more common in their field, they know what it means when you're part of the, you know, uh, Atlas collaboration, for instance, when you're part of the human genome project, um, that they have a shared understanding of what that currency means. But they've also developed authorship guidelines that make sense for their field and, and have, you know, or widely recognized in their fields. And so one thing that they've started doing in some of the harder sciences is differentiating between non-authored and authored contributions. And so they might list, um, you know, Angie and Nick and the many podcasters. Mm -hmm. And within the many podcasters, they might say, okay, podcasters one through 10 made a contribution to this scientific output. They helped with the uh, editing and dissemination, but that doesn't meet our discipline specific requirements for scientific authorship. So they're gonna be considered non-authored contributors. You can still find their name in the paper, but they're not considered authors of the manuscript 
according to how our discipline defines authorship. And then the second group of people might be considered the authors, people who contributed to authorship. And so maybe these were people who helped write out some of the questions that we would talk about during the podcast. Maybe they helped me craft some of the answers. Although I will say, I don't think anyone helped us write the questions or helped us design the answers for this podcast. But um, in theory, those people who contributed to the things that academics typically consider a, you know, authorship worthy contribution, those people would be considered authors, uh, contributing authors to the paper, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's, I think that's an interesting distinction to acknowledge that some people are meeting the traditional thresholds for authorship in the discipline. And some people are not meeting that traditional threshold, but still have made an important contribution that's worthy of being acknowledged. And there might be a very, very long list of those people. And so you just don't want to put all of their names in the acknowledgement section. You want a separate part of the paper that lists their names and what they actually did on the project. Yeah, it would be wonderful if like psych- psychology, I know like psychology, it, big team science in psychology has been like a really relatively recent movement, but it would be awesome to see that um, our field also kind of acknowledge the non like, I guess, the non author contributors, instead of, for example, I know a lot of people just will put names um, in the uh, acknowledgements, but people rarely read acknowledgement and in the acknowledgement section, like it also doesn't really count towards their own accomplishment. It's not being acknowledged properly um, compared to um, having your name basically under the title of a paper. So well, especially because some of these people who make non-authored contributions make massive contributions that, you know, might not meet our traditional thresholds for authorship. Um, but yeah, being the research coordinator, for instance, I think that's one of the most intensive jobs in the lab. And to see that those people, um, you know, aren't receiving a lot of recognition for their contribution, it's a bit concerning. And I will say two more things on that. One is that I think that we often fail to realize just how subjective and arbitrary these rules are and how much heterogeneity there is. And so one of the things that I learned when I started engaging in global collaboration is that authorship norms vary considerably across world regions. And there are some people in certain world regions who say that researchers in the U.S. are completely unethical because they fail to acknowledge the contributions of their research assistants Mm. and that we're essentially taking advantage of these people who are in somewhat vulnerable positions. Mm -hmm. And that's very eye-opening because at least when, you know, in social psychology, we almost never acknowledged the fact that we had up to 20 research assistants who were actually running the study. And so being exposed to all of those cultural differences and authorship norms, I think, makes you realize just how arbitrary this is. And I noticed that the most recent APA manual has started to change their definition of authorship. And now the APA manual explicitly endorses contributor which means to emphasize what people actually did. Mm-hmm. But they still, if you look at their definition of contributorship, they still give quite a bit of weight to writing. Mm-hmm. And so there's still this strong emphasis on who developed the ideas and who wrote things up. But I think we're starting to see a little bit of a shift and a bit more acknowledgement of the fact that there could be non-idea generation, non-writing contributions that could be authorship worthy. Yeah, definitely. Because I know in our lab, um, the kind of, I guess the criteria for authorship is to have like a sustained intellectual contribution to the project. 
I guess sustain is relatively, I guess it's less objective because it's like a, a kind of a period of time, maybe like two quarters of contribution. But then like what counts as intellectual contribution and what doesn't count as intellectual contribution seems to be relatively like blurry because running experiments sometimes require thinking about like, oh, how do I keep our, my, our participant engaged? Or where do I kind of disseminate our advertisement? So I definitely agree that having a clear guidelines or like a kind of a pre-specified principles to uh, see how we acknowledge each person's um, kind of contribution. That sounds like an important thing for our fields to do. And um, since we started a little bit talking a little bit about funding, because this is like what kind of differentiated between big team psychology versus big team physics is this issue about funding. And I know one of the barriers that you identified is about funding and sustainability. So I'm kind of curious about why is that the case? Because we have seen like there are a lot of examples about what big team size can accomplish. And it sounds like such a wonderful thing to do. But why is the funding so lacking given that the apparent advantages over big team size? What are the concerns from the founders' perspectives? Yeah, so since writing the paper, I think that my opinion has become a little bit more nuanced. And so I've since realized that it's perhaps a bit hyperbolic to say that there's no funding for big team science and psychology. Um, but it is, I think maybe perhaps the more nuanced conclusion is that there's a lot of big team science happening in psychology that's dramatically underfunded. And that's shocking because these are the biggest products that our field has to offer. And the reason why I'm, I've shifted my belief a little bit there is that I've since seen that there are some big team science projects in psychology that do have a considerable amount of funding. And so there's the SCORE project, and I, I believe that acronym stands for Systematizing Competence in Open Research and Evidence. But they have, I believe, a few million dollars of funding for that project. And what they're doing in this project is there's a lot of arms of it, but one of the arms is to engage in a lot of replications. And so a lot of labs are coming together and replicating studies in social and behavioral sciences. And so it is a big team science project in many ways, and it does have a lot of funding. So I do think some groups have managed to get funding. But what I found is that big team science and psychology is often emerging in a very grassroots manner and people are coming together before they've acquired millions of dollars of funding and they're sort of pulling themselves up by the bootstraps and saying well we need we need to generate some important scientific insights so let's just do this and that's very interesting to me so an anecdote there is the group that i work with is the psychological science accelerator and our first study examined how people around the world make judgments based on facial appearance. There was 241 collaborators on the project and we collected 17, no, sorry, 12,000 participants worth of data. And that was across 41 countries. And we did it on about a $2,000 budget. 2,000? Wait, yeah, two, like in total? In total, $2,000 budget. And when I sat down afterwards, I sort of did the, you know, napkin math and just said like, okay, how much could this have actually cost in principle? And I realized that if we just paid participants five US dollars for their 30 minute data collection session, that alone would have cost over a hundred thousand dollars. And so if we don't, and, and so that's not incorporating how much it costs 
to employ the researchers, how much it costs to have the lab space and the equipment. Just participant reimbursement alone cost $98,000 more than we actually had for the project. And so this, at the time, was one of the biggest studies ever done in social psychology, and it operated on the smallest of budgets. And so that's what inspired me and others to write about this as a barrier is the Psychological Science Accelerator isn't the only group that's doing this, that many, uh, many babies collaboration had a very limited amounts of funding. My dissertation project, which we called the Many Smiles Collaboration, had very limited budget. And so what we're seeing is that these researchers are coming together and they're running these extremely expensive studies and they're doing it on a shoestring budget. And that's not sustainable. It can work for a while, but it's not sustainable. And so that's why we wrote it as a barrier is because there's now these groups that have gained a lot of momentum and they're making these massive contributions to psychology. But if we don't fund them, they're just going to be a footnote in the history of psychology. I feel like I have to ask this question, like how exactly was the $2,000 like worked? Like what, like how, how did people like address the gap between the available funding and the actual cost of those study by volunteering? Yeah, it gets made up by volunteers. And so the $2,000 was basically used to offset costs in regions that couldn't volunteer all of their resources. And so people often don't realize this when they collect data in the U.S., but in many world regions, you have to pay a relatively large fee to have an ethics review board review your research proposal. Hmm. And so we would send those labs a small chunk of our $2,000 and say, please use this to get ethics approvals to help us with data collection. But what most people were doing is they were volunteering their lab space and they were volunteering their participants and they were volunteering their research assistants to help contribute to the study. And I think they were doing it because they saw that this was going to be an important scientific contribution and they did it for the greater good. But you can only ask people to make sacrifices for the greater good for so long. At some point, you have to address their basic needs, which in science is funding. Mm-hmm. I see. So you mentioned that um, the kind of, I guess, the, the procedures of running studies varies a lot, depends on regions. And I know that one of the other um, barriers that you identify is about um, diversity and especially related to the pre-existing in, in, inequalities hinders the participation of researchers from developing countries. So other than giving them more funding, have you have thoughts on like what are some other mechanisms? Can we mitigate this barrier? So one of the ideas that I think is promising is that we can find ways of addressing the existing inequality in science infrastructure. So obviously funding is a very great way of doing that. And when I mean funding, I don't mean necessarily send researchers in the US a million dollars and have them go out and spend that money in other world regions. We can fund those world regions directly. And so I recently met with a funder that was hoping to establish big team science research hubs in underrepresented world regions. And so they would inject the money directly into those scientific economies and network those hubs together and have them collaborate on large-scale projects. There's a lot of challenges. When I met with these funders, I realized there was a lot of challenges to doing this, but it's a very good faith effort. But that's, that's something that involves money, of course. Mm-hmm. Another thing that I'm seeing happen in psychology is that we're coming together and we're developing infrastructure and designing it to be a shared resource. And so the Psychological Science Accelerator 
the idea is that we're building this network of researchers who essentially pool their resources. But this infrastructure can be used by anyone that has a very important scientific question to ask. And so when the Psychological Science Accelerator is soliciting proposals for studies to run, anyone can submit that proposal. And the network votes on them, and we have external peer reviewers look at this. And so the idea is that the best idea wins out, and anyone could be the person who developed that idea. And so that's an example of trying to develop a shared infrastructure. You don't have to build new infrastructure all around the world. You could create a very agile shared infrastructure that anyone could use. Some people have described it similar to like a large telescope. Some, some I guess, um, people in other disciplines have sort of pooled resources to create a telescope that anyone could request time on. And so in some ways, what we're seeing in psychology is that we're developing collaborations to be big telescopes that anyone can use if they have a good reason to use it. I see. So I know that you mentioned psychological science accelerators a lot of time. And as a director of this organization, I feel like I'll also kind of ask you to, would you like to give kind of an introduction of what this organization is? And are there things that you kind of want our listeners to know to put on their radars about? Sure. So the Psychological Science Accelerator is a network of about 1,300 researchers from 80 countries that pool their intellectual and material resources to do big team science. The Psychological Science Accelerator focuses on social and cognitive psychology. We've probably completed, I think we have maybe 10 to 12 studies that we're working on. Some of them are done. The others are at various stages of completion, but all run on a relatively shoestring budget. I also kind of briefly pitched that we're not the only people engaging in this. And I think there's nothing proprietary about big team science. And so I really like to spend time helping other people develop these collaborations. And I'm a huge fan of the Mini Babies Consortium that does the same exact things that the Psychological Science Accelerator does, except they work with, as their name implies, babies. So I think there's a lot of these groups coming out. And I'm honestly, I have my bias as director of the Psychological Science Accelerator, so that's the one that I like the most, obviously, but I think there's a lot of really cool collaborations. And I think one of the best things that we can do as people who are leading these collaborations is work together and try to develop the movement and prioritize the movement over our individual organizations, because that's how science will, I think, most flourish is when people focus on the collective good. I see. Um, so we are kind of toward the end of our episode here. And I do want to ask a question that we've been asking a lot of guests on the podcast. And I think this is an especially fun question to ask in the context of big team science, which is how do you know a research question is a good one? And for example, in the context of big team science, what are the projects that are being selected to be kind of tested and investigated on a relatively large scale? Oh, that's a really good question. How do I know when an idea is a good one? For me, it's almost a gut feeling. Mm -hmm. And I, I have a saying that I often talk, I often give the saying to other people in psychological science scale, or I don't know if they listen to it, but I've often said that when it comes to ideas, it should be a hell yes or a hell no. And what that means for me is that if I'm not extremely excited about it from the beginning, I, I shouldn't do it because what's going to end up happening is these projects take a really long time and you'll deal with difficult collaborators and you'll have to engage in a lot of negotiation and a lot of emails. 
And if you're very excited at the beginning, if you can see the potential very early on, it all becomes worth it. But when you compromise and you dedicate your attention and resources to something that you don't think has a lot of potential from the beginning, sometimes you'll find the potential along the way. But in my experience, that's often not the case. I often have this feeling at the beginning where I say, this is important and this is big and this is worth spending our collective efforts on. And in the psychological science accelerator, I think that we get a lot of good proposals. Like I said, good ideas are cheap, execution is expensive. And so I feel like I'm constantly having that hell yes moment in the psychological science accelerator. Some of the recent projects that we've done that I really liked is we ran with James Gross actually at Stanford, a large global uh, examination of the effects of cognitive reappraisal versus other emotion regulation strategies um, and how that impacted people's responses to COVID-19 related information. And that, when I saw that project proposal, that was hugely exciting for me. And I really liked that. We also have projects that are looking at uh, how people connect words differently in different cultures. And so mm. um, basically creating this massive database of when I say the word nurse, what words do you think of? And doing that in many different languages across the world. And when I saw that project, I'm not a linguistics researcher, but I immediately said, wow, that seems like a really valuable data set when we want to try to develop models of how information about language is being stored in the brain. Mm -hmm. Having that massive data set across multiple world regions, it could be hugely impactful for the field. And so I will say, I think all of the PSA studies are very exciting to me. And I think a lot of the projects that other big team science groups are working on are also exciting because if it's not super exciting, people don't join the project. And so there's no, there's no paper and we never hear about it. And so that's, that's sort of my heuristic. Uh, usually I think that I, I, I get excited at the beginning, but I, I, I probably also miss out on a lot of great ideas by using that heuristic, but it's, it's led me in good direction so far, I think, and has made, made the work very exciting. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that gut feeling also comes from like years of immersion in scientific literature, the kind of intuitions getting honed along the way. But thank you so much for sharing your, uh, your, your answers with us. And it's been a great pleasure chatting with you on this big team site. And I'm very excited to see where this project is heading next steps. Thank you, Angie. Thank you so much for listening. We would love to hear what you think of this episode or our podcast in general. Or if you have any other suggestion for future guests or topics for the podcast, you can click on the link to the survey attached in the show note or reach us at stanfordpsychpodcast at gmail.com. You can also connect with us on Twitter at stanfordpsychpod. Finally, if you enjoy this podcast, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere so more people can find us. Thank you so much.